This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency is criticizing spending on tobacco cessation in Oklahoma. The recently released report finds our state's tobacco use is one of the worst in the nation, 40th for adults and 44th for youth, despite high-level spendings by the Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust at up to $60 million a year. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this study? Well, I mean, first, and what TSET will point out is, you know, what would our tobacco usage rates be without TSET? I mean, and that's, you know, not really clear from the study is that, you know, we've been making these investments and sure we're near the bottom in terms of tobacco usage and in particular tobacco usage among children. You know, those are very worrying statistics for the state and the health consequences that result from that and the, the cost that we all bear from from a state that has, you know, such a, an addiction to nicotine products. But if we haven't had T-set, you know, where would we be? And then yeah, I think the other thing is just that the dynamic of, you know, if you've got over a billion dollars sitting on a gra- on the ground essentially, um, you're going to have the legislature, the executive branch, everybody's going to have a better idea for, to how to spend that money than how it's currently being spent. And so I wouldn't be surprised if over the coming years that we continue to see increased targeting of TSET funds for things that are outside of what they're currently doing. Even TSET seems to admit that. Um, but I still think that there's strong support among Oklahomans that that money stays safeguarded in some respect to do tobacco cessation, which was its original goal. Neva. Well, you know, it's interesting. Voters back in 2000, I mean, they set up constitutional protections uh, so that uh, when you have this $1.6 billion fund, which is what it now is, that the 50 to $60 million a year in interest earnings that they can spend, uh, that that it is really targeted where it's supposed to be. Now, there's always the, as you say, right, I mean, there's always this rub and always this uh, uh, conversation among lawmakers of, you know, where can some of these funds appropriately be used that still uh, that, that still would fall in the category. But when you look at the 40% that's dedicated to tobacco cessation and prevention, and then you look at the results after all of these years, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not a rosy picture. And I mm-hmm. think that, uh, I, I think that there needs to be uh, Intense scrutiny, uh, you know, over uh, TSET to make sure that uh, that they are doing what needs to be done, uh, being innovative. I mean, when you look at things like their uh, tobacco hotline, uh, they spend. Um, you know, five times the national average on the hotline, and then yet look at what we're talking about in terms of the the results. So, I mean, if Oklahomans are spending, you know, basically eleven and a half dollars compared to the national average, a little over two dollars, we've got to be focused on finding out are there ways that we can get better results. If lawmakers start using this as a critical reason to take some more money from TSET, do you think there's a little bit of hypocrisy when they're also not passing any new laws to reduce? The the amount of tobacco use, cut making non-smoking uh, areas and, and, and things like that. Well, and I think that it goes back to uh, overall access to health care itself. I mean, we, we see that there's a correlation between health care outcomes and, and, uh, and smoking rates. And a lot of that has to do with, with access and education. You know, we're, we're dealing with uh, a problem that, you know, I think touches just about every Oklahoma family. You know, I've got 
both of my parents are smokers and, and, you know, and I sure wish that they weren't. I lost a grandfather to, to lung cancer from, uh, he started smoking, you know, basically when he was a child. I mean, that's something that we see in Oklahoma. And so, you know, if you're, if you're taking money out of this program, uh, it really needs to be invested in a new innovative way. It shouldn't be, we're going to take this and, and just decide that tobacco cessation is something that we're going to walk away from as a state. And I think that there would be hypocrisy there. And the, the voters back in 2000, even though it was 21 years ago, I think that we would still see a lot of support among voters in protecting that today. Yeah, stop mentioning that 2000 was 21 years ago. And, and I yeah. think it, uh, <laughs> I know, right? Sorry about and that. And I think that is correct. I don't think there's been any admission that uh, that the voters have changed their mind on protecting mm-hmm. this. And I don't think lawmakers would be foolish to uh, even suggest that there needs to be some wholesale change. I mean, when, when this master settlement agreement uh, took place back in 1998, um, I think no one knew, you know, what would uh, what would unfold and what would happen in terms of using these dollars in, a, in an efficient way. There have been some good programs and there have been some innovative programs like Tobacco Stops With Me and some things to, you know, to creatively try to engage the public and educate. And it is a tough process because, as you say, m- many folks uh, uh, just uh, historically have been, you know, kind of uh, enveloped into this smoking process. Uh, uh, process early in their lives and it's hard it's hard to break that uh, break that uh, later on in their adulthood so um, we'll see what happens going forward but I think loft I mean talking about who initiated then released this study this this week I mean I think what we're going to see is this particular uh, entity start to really delve into many agencies and many places where dollars are being spent taxpayer dollars appropriated dollars and find out are we getting the best bang for the buck. Epic Virtual Charter Schools newly reconstituted boarding a two and a half million dollar deal with a technology firm owned by the brother of its former chairman. The money is going to Futuristic Education, which has worked with Epic for the past seven years on its school management and student information systems. Neva, do you think this is an honest mistake, or is it just more of the same from Epic? <laughs> well, I think that's a big question. And when you uh, when you have these familial ties that are not being made public, and then they become public, mm-hmm. and somehow uh, everyone steps back and says, look, I mean, why are we still continuing to get all of these negative stories? Well, you're initiating much of that by n- the lack of transparency the lack of coming forward and addressing these contract issues, addressing the changes that are taking place within Epic and and the various arms that they have, uh, these other entities. And I think it it is an ongoing story, and it's a story that – as we think back to just a, a few months ago, uh, where the multi-county grand jury issued that very rare interim um, report that uh, was in in the midst of still an ongoing criminal inquiry, and you know, and again, they were talking about new safeguards, greater transparency, all of the things that continue to be said over and over and over again, and this story flies in the face of it. Yeah, Ryan, this seemed to be um, another issue of blaming the media for bringing this up. Sorry, we you know we had to bring this up. That the brother was own, the owner of this business. I mean, yeah, you know, the audacity of the Tulsa world to call big <laughs> charter schools and, and, and say, hey, can you explain how, how you've decided to do this thing that looks exactly like what you've been doing before? And, and you know, they're saying that they're changing, um, and it, but it's just really hard as a taxpayer to take them at face value whenever this isn't even a brother-in-law deal. This is a brother deal. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's worse than, you know, the, some attenuated connection here. I mean, there's, 
and all of this could be totally on the up and up. I mean, I, I want to make that very clear. You know, the fact that this corporation or this LLC is in a one bedroom house, uh, you know, with one person you know, registered on it, you know, all of that could be totally fine. Uh, but whenever you do all of this in this way and, you know, weeks later the media catches it and then your, your response is to go into lockdown mode, it raises a ton of questions. And I think that it's, you know, uh, there are, you know, this is the deadline week for, and I know that we shouldn't be talking about the 2022 legislative session yet, but the deadline week for interim study requests, um, you know, to study issues for the upcoming 2022 session. Representative Sheila Dills out of uh, Tulsa, who I believe is going to have at least one interim study looking at transparency issues and Epic Charter Schools and, and, and the entire virtual charter school environment. And, you know, she had some you know really important legislation that stalled in the Senate this last legislative session, and I would expect that. With this news, with the grand jury news, what we'll probably hear from the grand jury before the next legislative session, uh, the representative Dills is going to be quite busy uh, with some legislative responses coming up in 2022. Well, you know, and it's interesting, this futuristic education that we're talking about, this LLC, it's less about uh, the LLC who the members of the LLC are, what's operating. It's more about the transparency question right. that I think is coming mm-hmm. into focus. And I think when you when you look at the the response back that okay, Epic then says, well, we we've uh, we've renegotiated, and instead of five million in fees, it's two point five million in fees, and and we've uh, changed the term from five years. Uh, uh, from five years to 10 years. I mean, all of those nuances in terms of the, the legalese is not is not really the issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, the issue is let's just get everything to a place where people know what's going on. Uh, they can, If they are willing to accept the criticism for the way they operate uh, their entity, uh, companies do that all the time, and they don't have to be Fortune 500 companies or on the New York Stock Exchange. They can be uh, small entities, even entities doing business with the, the state state of Oklahoma, but in terms of trying to play the blame game, nothing is accomplished by that. A new report finds law enforcement pursuits resulted in the deaths of 18 people over the past five years. This includes five fatalities since July of last year, and all but eight of those killed were not the eluding drivers. Officers were supposed to be following a new policy weighing whether the benefits of apprehension are worth the risk of the chase. Ryan, do you feel like they are following this policy? Well, the, the policy needs to go even further. I mean, we, what, we're, re, what we realized from this report, I think, you know, people that have been following policing and, and criminal justice reform issues for years now, uh, is this is appalling, but it's not surprising. You know, we have this mentality uh, that you're it's not you're innocent and proven until proven guilty. You're you're guilty whenever I'm trying to arrest you. I mean, that's that's this mindset that we've moved to. Anyone, uh, you know, weighing, you know, if we all just sit here as reasonable, you know, folks, you know, listening to the radio right now, and you know, weighing whether or not it makes sense to drive 80 miles an hour or or better after somebody for a stolen car or. Uh, an unexpired tag or suspicion because they they didn't use a signal. Um, You know, these are, of course, you know, you shouldn't do that. But we have to have very strong policies in place because, uh, you know, what happens is you get egos. Um, You know, egos come into play, even the the best trained people among us. I mean, it's a very natural human response that if you have the power and the authority to tell somebody to do something, to follow what you believe is a a valid rule, and then they don't do it, that'll make you mad. Uh, And, you know, you end up in these uh, chases and if there's not just hard and fast rules if you do not chase this for a person and eluding 
you know, the, the very fact that they've sped up and they're, they're trying to elude you, that in and of itself, you know, shouldn't be the justification. And until we change those policies, until, frankly, we allow uh, the, the, the victims uh, of these police chases the opportunity to really hold law enforcement agencies uh, accountable, which we, you know, right now is very difficult to do with qualified immunity and other uh, procedural hurdles, until we can allow them to hold them accountable you know, we really aren't going to be in a situation where we see these things come to an end. Neva. Well, and I think uh, when we look at this, I mean, as you said, over the past five years, 18 people have been killed uh, in uh, vehicular pursuits by OHP. And out of that, at least eight of those weren't the eluding drivers. Mm-hmm. So there certainly begs a lot of questions. I think when we look at, again, the statistics, I mean, the, this uh, 20 years of research that was uh, uh, spoken about in this study and the fact that, uh, that no weight in their estimation uh, by this national uh, independent uh, group should be given to um, stolen vehicles or traffic offenses as a justification to initiate the pursuit, um, that clearly is that clearly is the is the the point that's in question is will policy change or do they believe that this is uh, at the discretion of of the officer uh, at the time at the particular incident but when we look at Oklahoma and we're ranking fifth uh, the fifth worst in the country over the last, uh, uh, at least from 2016 to 2019, I think it was, in the mm-hmm. analysis from the National Highway Traffic, uh, Traffic Association data, um, that's a bad number. And so I think, again, it, it begs the, the conversation of uh, let's look at everything, not everyone just coming to the table with closed minds, but figuring out what is in the best interest for uh, for law enforcement, for, for uh, the public at large, and certainly the the overarching question of safety. Well, and you know, the I think uh, an important part of this is where this criticism and these recommendations are coming from. They're they're not coming from, uh, you know, well they are coming from the liberal uh, left, but they're that want police accountability and reform. But a lot of these recommendations are developed and being pushed and advocated for by law enforcement and former law enforcement officials around the nation. So I think that that's important. And the other thing that we've seen is the way that. We approach law enforcement in this nation over the last 20 plus years has really changed. A lot of that's had to do with shows like Cops uh, that that sensationalize and distort what real law enforcement is. And a lot of the folks that end up in law enforcement today are people that grew up in an, uh, in an era in which that was the way that policing and law enforcement was portrayed to them in popular culture. Uh, and I think that there's there's an opportunity to rework that, but some of it just needs to recognize that yeah, at the end of the day, the people in these interactions are human beings. And, and if we don't have rules to, to account for that, then we're going to continue to see people lose their lives. And even there was also a push on uh, from the Republicans on the right on crime to be, make change the way that we police, the way that we actually incarcerate, and things like that. And, and there and it is a great debate with uh, you know with really strong points of view on both sides. I think in Oklahoma, I think but I think we would all generally agree this is a uh, this is a state that believes in strong law enforcement, believes in it believes in the rule of law, believes that uh, things uh, uh, that law enforcement needs to be supported even though there have been pockets where that's been challenged in the last year but I think that when you look at this instance it's about policy it's about what's written it's about what's specific it's about what the training is and those are the things that law enforcement has to work out uh, to the to the point that they believe that it is most beneficial for the public at large so we can all sit in handicap and we can all sit and um, look at studies and try to you know do this um, 
analysis from the sidelines, but at the end of the day, it's the folks that are doing the job that have to be the ones that make these tough decisions and then be able to explain it to the public, which I think over the years, by and large, they've done a very good job of. The state is closing a minimum security prison in Northwest Oklahoma. <clears throat> Officials are citing high maintenance costs as a reason to close the decades old William S. Key Correctional Center in Fort Supply. Neva, this seems to have taken lawmakers <laughs> by surprise. Well, whether it did or it didn't, I mean, posturing is always part of this when uh, when you start talking about closing, uh, closing state institutions of any sort in communities because these folks are elected. Uh, they have to answer to the folks there, the 140 uh, individuals in this particular instance losing their uh, losing their jobs uh, uh, at the at the uh, uh, prison. I mean, those those questions always come up, and it's always we talk about it all the time. It's tough to make the decision that something has to close mm -hmm. uh, or something has to be moved. But when the decision's made, then I think you get this jockeying, uh, and and sometimes you get folks that maybe were uh, not fully uh, made aware of what was getting ready to happen. Uh, it, it appeared even with the uh, the chairman of the Senate Appropriations right. Committee by some of his some of his public comments that he was not happy with it and certainly he wields a big stick in terms of uh, where dollars are appropriated and what happens so I think uh, I, I think we'll kind of see this start to kind of sort itself out but it may be one of uh, a longer list uh, moving forward in terms of these aging facilities um, and um, it, with uh, if if there is a continued reduction in population, that also is going to impact uh, the, the need and use of these types of facilities, particularly some of these in communities around the state that are, as I say, very old and very high maintenance. And in many cases, I mean, we're hearing the argument that uh, uh, folks in, in the correctional officers and others are saying there's not enough of us. I mean, so it may, it may be that, that the job may not be uh, open and for supply, but they may be able to go somewhere else in the state and and uh, uh, be welcome to continue to do uh, correctional work. Ryan. Well, you know, Senator Casey Murdoch uh, out of Felt, Oklahoma, you know, he's obviously very upset about this. It means, you know, 140 jobs in his district. And if you look in these rural areas, you know, I represented a uh, rural prison in Bowley, Oklahoma, the, the John Lilly Correctional Center, and it's an employer. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, to me, the, the aspect of this, and, you know, Senator Murdoch's concerns here, I think, are totally legitimate. I mean, he's concerned about the the economic well-being of his constituents and their ability to have jobs close to home. But we also have to step back for a moment and look at this you know, toxic symbiosis that we've got between our system of mass incarceration and economic development in rural Oklahoma. You know, we should not have you know, one depending on the other. We should never be in a situation. I mean, it, as, a, as, a, as a state, our policy decisions to open prisons and close prisons uh, ought to be independent on whether or not it's going to mean some jobs for a community. Um, that doesn't you know, take away at all for the, the real impact that these folks are going to feel in losing their jobs. Um, but the state should you know, be in a situation where we can celebrate the closing of prisons and you know, help folks retool in those areas. I mean, they shouldn't have to move all, all the way across the state. But um, you know, you know, frankly, if you're in a rural area and you know, the, your best job prospect is working at a prison, you know, as a, as a state, we've got bigger questions about rather than just the closure of one single facility. 
Well, and it's also an issue of it's not just these state jobs. Uh, it's a, in any community, and particularly these smaller rural communities, it's about small businesses. I mean, private-owned businesses that are struggling, some that are closing their doors. Those folks uh, that were the employees are out of a job as well. So the, it, the idea that somehow there's there's almost uh, sometimes this portrayal that it's it's more difficult or less, um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's less a good deal for folks that sometimes believe that they've got a guaranteed job for as long as they want versus folks in the private sector. I mean, we see this in, in anything. I mean, even in school districts, which typically are the largest employer uh, behind, uh, you know, sometimes uh, municipal government, county government, and, and the school districts in these rural areas, That's those are the, the employers. So um, so I think, I think it's easy, and, and certainly for the 140 families or individuals that are impacted, yes. I mean, it's a it's a real deal, but we have to look at the larger picture of what's happening and why. And I think that's a conversation that these appropriators uh, will come back next year in session and have to uh, address because there'll be a lot of a lot of folks knocking on their door, wanting some answers or wanting to advocate for certain things. Leaders of the House and Senate appointed a members of a 24-person committee to oversee the nearly $2 billion in federal funds the state is expected to receive from the American Rescue Plan. The bipartisan panel will work with Governor Stitt on how to distribute the money. Ryan, do you expect this will change the way COVID relief funding works in the state? Well, um, it's it, when you look at the way that COVID relief funding is spent in Oklahoma, it's, it's a highly complicated and complex process. I mean, you're, you're dealing with you know, federal dollars that are coming in uh, on the basis of a brand new federal law and ba- brand new federal regulations built up to support and implement that law. Um, and, you know, it has created a, an entire industry of individuals in the private sector and in the public sector at the state, federal and local uh, levels of government of people, you know, to learn how to distribute these funds. And, you know, one of the I think important things is understanding that you know these were emergency dollars, are emergency dollars, and there's an emphasis on getting them spent fast. Uh, there's an emphasis on getting them, you know, directly to, and that means you know directly to the folks that need them. I think that means that there'll be um, you know some mistakes made along the way, and you know having Loft there to oversee that, or or this or this group that's going to you know, be similar to Loft uh, there to oversee the the spending of that. That's always a good thing, you know, having more eyes on it, having an ability to say, you know, we think that this is a priority versus this being a priority, um, you know, being able to tell the executive branch, we don't want you to commit us to future spending beyond this current uh, budget year, beyond these current federal funds. Um, but at the end of the day, the the process is so complex and and so, uh, you know, you've, you've really got to be a nerd in this stuff. <laughs> and, and if you aren't that and you aren't doing it 24-7, you're the one, you know, those are the folks that are going to have the real influence over how those dollars are spent. The lawmakers may influence it somewhat, but it's the folks that are in it every day that understand it that are going to you know, really drive this train. Neva Governor Stitt says he's actually looking forward to working with the committee, but do you feel like the committee might actually slow down the process instead of just having one person decide? On the, on the upfront, I would say probably not. I mean, again, Ryan is right. I mean, Folks, I think, have no comprehension. I mean, we hear this, uh, uh, we hear the term ARPA uh, talked about. I mean, the, this American uh, Recovery Act, I mean, the money that's coming down from.
from the federal government. In Oklahoma, we're getting $1.9 billion, with a B, dollars, uh, this new infusion of money. And there are, there are certainly all kinds of guidelines, all kinds of uh, uh, restrictions in terms of what they can do with it. But the flip side is there's a lot they can do with it, and that's mm-hmm. a lot of money to be spent. And that doesn't include what counties and cities that are qualifying and getting an infusion of, um, of uh, dollars that also are ARPA dollars. So, um, you know, over the next year, 24 months, I mean, we're going to see a lot of spending. Uh, a lot of it will be in- infrastructure uh, directed and other things that will uh, be looked at to uh, kind of foresee what can be done better and anticipate the next pandemic if there is one. And, and people have to, I think, look forward and say, let's Let's look at worst case scenario and be prepared and uh, do do some things differently than uh, where we found ourselves uh, in the in the past year. And I think the other thing is, from a legislative standpoint, we have this um, I, I think this kind of uh, building effect of, uh, of building this bridge between the the lawmakers and the governor. I mean, when the first infusion of dollars came uh, in for COVID, I mean the governor and his folks basically just ran the show. They ran with it. There was uh, there was a lot of consternation. Uh, by lawmakers who felt like they weren't getting any, um, they weren't getting any real uh, input or conversation into the mix. So this this. Uh, solves that problem uh, to a great degree. I think the 24 members that have been selected will be diligent. I think they'll do a good job of trying to at least be those eyes, as you say, Ryan, uh, look at some things, maybe ask some questions that sometimes folks that are deep into just trying to get the stuff done don't always, it, it's good to have uh, fresh eyes on any any project and certainly on any spending. So I think uh, I think when we look at this, um, as, we, as we look in the fall, and, and on into uh, next year when session gets back in, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what is going on with these with these dollars and what we're hearing from lawmakers uh, as they observe what's going on. Aneva and Ryan's comments do not ne- necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Uh, programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.